Today's passage is one of the sweetest stories that you will find in the Bible. But to really see its beauty and its goodness, we need to sink down into the gutter first. Two weeks ago was the first team meeting for this year's India team. And every year at the first meeting, we eat dinner, we sit down in my living room, and the first question I ask is, why are you going to India? And they share, and after they share, Ricky and I will always share stories of previous teams and the powerful ways that Jesus met them there in the most unexpected of ways and changed them in the most unexpected of moments. And we always tell them that somewhere along this journey, Jesus is going to meet them there too. And when he does, they will know it because it will feel like a broken heart. When their eyes are opened and he lets them see what he sees and he lets them feel what he feels, And that moment for me personally is a story that I rarely share. It's also a story for Ricky that he rarely shares. But that night he did share it. And so I asked him if I could share it with you today. It was the first day of his first trip to India 11 years ago. He was leading a trip of college students and they just arrived in Kolkata to visit Smriti. And they were walking on the streets, taking in this massive mega metropolis with all of its overwhelming sights and sounds and smells and the massive humanity and the traffic and the dirt and the mold and the concrete. And they got to one of the main strips. You might consider it the New York Times or the Times Square in New York of Kolkata, a bustling place. And as Ricky was walking along, taking it all in, he saw something that stopped him dead in his tracks. Just a few feet in front of him was a little girl, no more than four or five years old, tiny and thin, covered in dirt, wearing nothing but a filthy t-shirt, and sleeping on the concrete in the gutter. Ricky looked around, and there were no adults except the ones that were walking around her, stepping over her to go on their way. She was so unavoidably alone, so little, so helpless and vulnerable, and just so heartbreakingly forgotten. As he stared at, that, at this little girl, he looked up and he noticed how directly above her was this bright, pristine window advertisement for Audi. And behind it was a showroom filled with the cars that drew everyone's attention as they walked by. And it was that contrast, that stark Unforgiving contrast that was so crushing. How below this 
luxurious depiction of what captivates the attention of the world and what the world chases after was this little girl, a no-name, a nobody, a slumdog, lying in the gutter forgotten by this world. That will break your heart. It's a haunting story. Perhaps deep down, subconsciously, it's, because, it's haunting because as I'm telling you about her, I'm also telling you about you. And there's some strange common thread between you and her that's there yet is so imperceptible. Her story is our story. Because it's a haunting picture of the curse that lies over this world. One that tucks in a lot more girls in the gutter at night than just her. It's a curse that says there's no difference between you and her. Because don't be fooled by what you drive. Don't be fooled by what you wear. Don't be fooled by what you live in. In the end... You will own just as much as she does, and you will be forgotten by this world just as much as she was. Because this world swallows up everything in the obscurity of death. She just experienced in this life a lot earlier what we all experience in the end and the future that awaits us all. It's a curse that says, from dust you were created, and to dust you will return like those who go down to the grave and are remembered no more. Her story is our story. Her story longs for redemption. For someone to come with power, not just to change your life, but someone that comes with power to change your world. For someone to come that doesn't just happen to come across her, but someone that would come looking for her, whose heart breaks for her with a heart full of abounding, life-changing love that finds her and rescues her from the obscurity of the curse, that lifts her out of the dust and the dirt. Do we not long for the same thing? Her story is our story, but it's not the whole story. Our passage this morning tells the rest of it. It's the story of a king that goes looking for a slumdog. And it begins with a simple question that rings out and echoes from the throne room. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left that I may show them kindness? And behind that question is a powerful moment in David's life. After David killed Goliath and became that national hero, he was brought into the inner circle of Saul's court. But we know that Saul fell deeper into his jealous rage against David. He tried to kill him multiple times, and eventually David was forced to flee. And he had to go on the run as Saul mobilized his entire army to hunt down David like a wild dog. 
But God gave David a friend, the most unexpected friend of all. It was Saul's own son, Jonathan. We're told that the souls of Jonathan and David were knit together, and each of them loved the other as they loved their very own soul. So while Saul is trying to kill David, Jonathan was protecting David. He risked his own life to help him escape because Jonathan saw that the Lord had chosen David. And so Jonathan chose to align himself with God's purposes. And what does that mean? That means he gave up his position and privilege and status as a prince of Israel. He sacrificed his own name, his own welfare, his own life, and gave up his own future. And he gave allegiance to the anointed one. And when David finally had to flee, Jonathan made a request. Because they didn't know if they'd ever see each other again. Jonathan said, David, would you show me and my house the steadfast love of the Lord? If I die, please don't cut off your steadfast love for my family, even when the Lord cuts off all your enemies from the face of the earth. David, King, will you remember me? And David and Jonathan made that very covenant. And years later, Jonathan did find David one more time at his secret camp while he was on the run, and it was the last time that they were together. And Jonathan said to David, Do not fear my father Saul, for you are the true king of Israel, and I will stand with you. And shortly after, Jonathan died in battle. So perhaps David woke up that morning and Jonathan came to mind, the way old friends often do. And David remembered his promise, that covenant that he had made with Jonathan in his house. And so he asked his question, is there still anyone left? And they brought to him a man named Ziba, because Ziba had been a servant in the house of Saul. So David asked him, but a little differently this time. He said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba says, Why, yes, there is, my Lord. There's still a son of Jonathan. And he's lame in both feet. He's a cripple. And we know from 2 Samuel 4 that when Saul and Jonathan died and the house of Saul finally fell, everyone had to flee for their lives. Jonathan's son was five years old, and his nurse grabbed him in the midst of the chaos as they fled, and she dropped him. He broke his legs, and he was crippled as he began a new life on the streets. So David hears, yes, there's one more. And David asks, where is he? I want to find him. And Ziba says, Lodabar. He's in Lodabar. Now in the midst of this exchange between David and Ziba, the Bible wants us to see something. 
Did you notice how this son of Jonathan isn't even given a name up to this point? Because it's telling us something about him. It wants us to see his humiliation, his lowliness, and his shame. He's a no-name, a nobody, a forgotten soul that isn't even worth remembering. And where is this no-name, nobody? He's in Lodabar, which was the trash heap slum of the kingdom, because Lodabar literally means nowhere, nothing. So is there anyone left? Why, yes, my Lord, there is. He's a crippled, no-name from nowhere, a nobody from nothing, a slum dog from Lodabar. And so the king sends for the slum dog. Now you have to remember that this would have made David's counselors and his inner court and his advisors very uneasy. This is quite unconventional. Because the house of Saul was not without its supporters. This would have made them very uneasy and they would have said something to the effect, Surely of, oh, greatest of kings, let me understand. You want to show kindness to this man. Does that really make the most sense? Do you really want to bring your enemy so close? Sure, Saul's supporters may be few in this land, but don't do something that gives them hope. This makes you look weak and vulnerable. But imagine how this would have made Jonathan's son feel. Imagine how uneasy he felt when he heard the king has found you and he's coming for you. He'd have been terrified because he knows exactly who he is and what he represents to David and he knows how the world works. He's a threat. Because in the ancient world, when a new, t- new king took over, what was the first thing they did? They eliminated all other claims to the throne. They hunted down every other single heir to the throne that could possibly say they were the next in line, and they killed them. So why would this king be doing anything different? But he also knows who David was. Everybody knew who David was. And I think it's easy for us to romanticize David a little bit. And we picture him as this handsome young boy wearing freshly washed linens, lying in an open field, playing his harp, while sheep just dance around him peacefully. No, that is not David. David was brutal. David was the killer warrior king. There is a reason people wrote songs about him that said, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. He's the giant slayer. He's the one who circumcised 200 Philistines just so he could marry his first wife. David is a legend of brutality. And war. 
And there is no king in the entire Bible that even comes close to him. Not to mention the fact that he is surrounded by legendary men in their own right that would do anything for him if he asked. And they gave him unquestioned loyalty. That's who David is. And he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly who David is. So when he hears the news and the envoy arrives to escort him to the castle, can you imagine the resignation to his fate that he had to feel? All the scenarios that he thought might play out. Maybe he'll just keep me in prison and bring me out to entertain his dinner guests as they all laugh while he makes the cripple dance. Or maybe he'll just execute me for everyone to see and make a show of me. How much will this king make me suffer? In the end, whatever he thought, it didn't matter. He couldn't run. And who's possibly going to help him? He'd resigned himself probably to the only fate that made any sense. That obscurity was the only thing that was waiting for him. And when he's brought before David, he falls on his face. And he says, behold, I am your servant. And there's not a chance that he could have possibly imagined what David would say to him. Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore all the land of your fathers. Ziba and his sons and all of his servants will be your servants. They will till your land. They will care for your house. And you will live in my house as a son. And you will eat at my table always. And all Mephibosheth could say was why would you do this for a dead dog such as I? That's a great question. Why would David do this? What's his motivation for such an unconventional, anti-world, extraordinary act? It's one of the most significant words in the entire Hebrew vocabulary. Hesed. It's a word that means so many different things all at once. Kindness, steadfast love, friendship, justice. And what those words mean in the Bible are different than what we think they mean. And there's actually no English translation for hesed because there's no equivalent word for it in our culture. So it's often translated in different ways. And in this passage, it's translated as kindness. So what David asks in his question, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show hesed? Is there anyone left that I can show covenant love? It is a life-changing word. It's the type of love that commits itself to the good of another when it doesn't make sense. 
Hesed is love for the unlovable and the undeserving. It's a deep, sacrificial love that puts one's own welfare at risk to secure the welfare of another. It's the kind of love and kindness that defies the expectations and conventions of this world. It's the type of love that goes out of its way to look and search for and find so that it might do good. It's the type of love that remembers and does not forget. But make no mistake, this story isn't showing us David's hesed. It's not showing us David's love. It's not showing us Jonathan's love. It's showing us God's love. It's showing us God's covenantal Hested love and what it looks like and what it does. Because that was the basis of the very covenant between Jonathan and David. When Jonathan said, would you show me and my family the steadfast love of the Lord? And in this passage in verse 3, David says, is there anyone left that I may show him the kindness of God? What makes this story so beautiful isn't because it's showing us David's love. It's showing us God's divine, life-changing, covenantal, hesed love and the beauty of what it looks like. But how did David even know what God's hesed love looked like in the first place for him to be so bold to think that he could show it? It's because of his own story. David was the one who was literally forgotten and overlooked by his own father and left out in the fields when Samuel came. He was a nobody in his own family. But God found the one that was forgotten about by everyone else and brought him out of obscurity and into glory because that's what God's love does. And what made David so bold is to defy the conventions of the day and show this kind of love to Mephibosheth when the world says, He is your enemy. Yet he does this without fear of his enemies, without worry about his welfare. It's because God made promises to him in his steadfast love. There's a reason this story is only two chapters after last week's passage where God promised David that his throne would be an everlasting throne and of his kingdom there would be no end. It's when God told David, I have brought you out of the pasture and I have made you a prince. I have brought you out of obscurity and into glory. Your house and your throne and your kingdom will stand forever. David's response should sound familiar. He said, Who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me thus far? Who am I that you would do this for me? David can show this kind of fearless love and courage because it isn't rooted in who the world says his enemies are or what they think he should do. It's not rooted in self-preservation and self-protection. It's rooted in the hesed love of God That had been shown to him. And he's free. His security is in the promises of God. 
that God gave him. And his desire is to show the love that God had shown him. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always at the king's table. Two men, two kings, brought out of obscurity and into glory by the life-changing, hesed love of God. It's a beautiful story. It's also 100% literally your story. Because like Mephibosheth, we are all the grandchildren of a fallen, disgraced king. A king that was created for glory to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord from sea to shining sea and to rule and reign over the cosmos. He was a king designed for glory, yet he destined us all to obscurity. Adam was a king that only looked out for himself. And he could not show the Hesed love of God because he had rejected the self-giving, covenantal Hesed love of God. And he brought a curse upon this world and upon all of his generations after him. Upon you, upon me. But this curse didn't just cripple our legs, it crippled our hearts with sin and shame. And it renders you Dead in trespasses and sins. It's a curse that says whatever pleasure you experience in this life, it will all eventually end in pain. It's a curse that reminds you that whatever satisfaction you're able to find in this life and store up for yourself, it will eventually all give way to sorrow. It's a curse that makes us think we can find the affirmation and purpose that we long for and were created for in the face of our children or a friend or a lover. But it will never, ever get rid of that profound sense of loss and insignificance that we spend our lives trying to pretend is not there. It's a curse that says whatever joy and goodness you can find in this life, enjoy it. Because it will never compare to the glory for which you were created for, and it will all be taken away in the end. Because this curse swallows everything up in death and leaves us all forgotten in the gutter of the grave, and the world will move on. We all live in Lodabar. We are all Mephibosheth. We are all that little girl in the gutter. We are all kings in exile, fallen children of a fallen king, a kingdom lost that we can never reclaim. And the good news of the gospel is that there's another king who's coming to look for you. A king that goes looking for the slum dogs in the Lodabar of this world. And a king that came to find you. He's that king promised to David who sits on an eternal throne and rules over an eternal kingdom. And he entered into this world by way of the gutter. 
by lying in a manger. He walked the streets to find the lame, the cripple, the blind, and the beggar, the marginalized, the slum dogs, the no names, the nobodies. His ears can hear their cries, like the blind man who cried out on the side of the road, Son of David, have mercy on me, hoping that this king was kind to cripples too. His eyes look to find their face, like the woman who touched the hem of his robe while hiding in shame. He wanted to find her. This king comes with the power to change lives and change this world because he is a king whose heart is filled with the life-changing power of his abounding Hesed love. And this king lets his enemies come close too. In fact, so close that they could rip out his beard, whip his back to shreds, spit on his face, drive nails into his hands, and hang him on a cross. And he did something that makes no sense to this world. An act of kindness that defies definition and goes against all reasonable conventions of this world. And something that made him look so weak and pitiful and pathetic and vulnerable. And it was a gift that displayed the full Hesed love of God. Why? Because Jesus remembered you. He's the king that came to uncripple your heart from sin and shame. He came looking for you to find you and call you by name and say, Mephibosheth, now you will live in my house as a son and daughter of the living God. And you will always eat at my table. I've called you out of the pasture and I have made you a prince I have lifted you out of obscurity and resurrected you unto glory. And you will rule and reign with me over a kingdom that is infinitely better than the one that was lost. I am your beloved and you are mine. Who are we, O Lord, that you would do this for us? So what are we to do with this? What does it mean for you? Do you find yourself angry all the time? Just always feeling like life is at war and you're surrounded by your enemies. And you're always on the run. Have you forgotten the disarming, hesed love of Christ for you? Are you disappointed with how getting all the things you wanted in life still didn't give you the life you wanted? Have you forgotten the Hesed love of Christ that gives you far more than you could possibly imagine? Or do you simply feel forgotten by a friend, a family member, someone close to you? Or maybe your kids, as they grow older, and they begin to live their own lives, and you find yourself trying to hold on to what's so precious to you, but the world keeps moving on. Have you forgotten the Hesed love of Christ 
that holds on to you. And what does this mean for us as a church? It's King David who wanted to show the Hesed love that God had showed to him. It's King Jesus who says, As I have loved you, so love one another. Tonight we're having our congregational meeting. We're changing our name, presenting two pastors that will be added to our pastoral staff, and we will look to the future. And I know each of those things is enough to perhaps cause some concern all by themselves, yet alone, whoever's idea it was to slam all of them together in one meeting. And maybe part of that worry is just that simple subconscious fear that maybe things are changing and it will leave you forgotten about and left behind. No. Let me summarize our desire and what tonight's meeting is really about by summarizing it with a question. Is there anyone to whom we might show the Hesed love of Christ? We want to be a church whose future is shaped by the life-changing Hesed love that we have received and ask, is there anyone left? Is there anyone left in India? That we might show that kind of love, that we might build churches and water wells and say, we see you in your suffering because Christ sees you. We commit ourselves to your good. We sacrifice for you in the midst of your sorrows because Christ came looking for us. And so we came looking for you and we found you. And these gifts are because we belong to you. Is there anyone left in this church? whether you feel young or whether you are old, anyone who feels forgotten in their sorrows and difficult seasons or confused by life's events, is there anyone that we can invite deeper into this community that says you are family and we will fellowship like kings who have been brought out of obscurity and into glory, and we will walk each other home into this kingdom that is ours? Is there anyone left in this community? Just because we live inside of that Audi ad does nothing to remove the power of the curse that is upon this world. So is there anyone left around us that Christ might rescue from the obscurity of addiction and competition and materialism and just that gnawing question that we all feel but we don't like to talk about? Is this all that there is? Is there nothing more? Is there anyone left around us whose life just looks so full on the outside, yet on the inside, they are empty? And to them we might say, come, there is a seat at a table. There's a place for you here because there's a place for you in the heart of God. So might we be a church that displays the love that we have been given. And it is not weak. It is powerful. It is life-changing. And it's the very love that has turned us from slum dogs into sons. So might we live upwardly towards God, outwardly towards others, for the glory of Christ.
and the life of the world. Let's pray.